As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Miami Nice, the podcast that's all about the 2006 movie Miami Vice. But today, it is a collateral confession. We are getting in the taxi cab. We are going for a ride. I've got my driver right here. It's Mr. Blake Howard, podcast impresario, as I like to say every now and then when I get to do the intro. And today we have one of our best friends, someone who I've seen Collateral in the theater with. Oh my God. Mr. Corey Everett, the creator of Cinephile and Little Cinephile. And he is going to get into our taxi cab and tell us all about Collateral. Everything he has to tell us about Collateral. Welcome, Corey. Welcome, Corey. <laughs> Welcome back. You've been here before to One Heat Minute Productions. We're excited to have you back. But this is an ambush. Okay. Uh -oh. Have you have you seen the Mr. Men books, Corey? No, I don't think so. Katie, have you seen the Mr. Men books? Is this like uh, they're, they're little? Is it like ball, little? Little ball-shaped characters. There's a library of them. Um, yeah, like Little buy, Miss little Cranky miss, Pants. Little Miss Cranky Pants, etc. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now the writer and brains behind the cinephile game night, which I, can I say, Corey, I don't know if many people had this experience, obviously during the pandemic, the cinephile game nights that you guys had and the virtual ones were just a mecca for so much fun and joy while we're all locked down. But I have taken that game since to so many virtual trivia nights where I don't play because I'm like, it's not fair. <laughs> like with the civilians who are my friends i'm like they're like well why don't you play i go no um and even one of my friends we went to a movie night and he's like he's like we're gonna play yeah and i'm like yeah this is like oceans 11 they don't the house is gonna get taken they don't know that i'm here these are civilians it's not fair for me to play this game and we did win indeed but i want to say thank you so much because the cinephile game night was a lot of fun for yeah. even civilians to have a ball with and just so it's it's a joyful thing and your hand in it is great but why i say that this is an ambush is because little miss cranky pants where's <laughs> little man little man Corey? Mm, sure I mean, we've got your fantastic series little cinephile which is the film noir the giallo horror french new wave 
why not little man katie you and i know what <laughs> little michael man's all about we're talking about little michael man today we why should do a man? merch collab merch collab Corey. that's let's why. do it so this is an ambush this is an ambush let's I do it to make sure i got him no man thank one you so one heat minute x little cinephile <laughs> yes oh, put it on the calendar well it's on the calendar for next year man thank you so much for doing this we know that um we know that you don't get your tan in Miami. We know that you're much more of a, a sprawling LA taxi cab confessional kind of guy. Um, but, and you've now seen Collateral with Katie. So first and foremost, <laughs> what was that like? Give us a witness testimony. We need to know everything about what it's like watching a movie with one Katie Walsh. Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much, Blake and Katie, for having me. I feel like you guys are driving the cab, riding in the cab. I'm merely the coyote uh, in the headlights here, just kind of catching a glimpse at you guys <laughs> as you're, you're speeding on your journey. So I really appreciate you having me. Um, in terms of the Cineball Game Nights, again, credit to Katie. She, uh, We started that very early in the pandemic, the film stage guys and I. Katie was on the very first one where we were kind of testing it out as a concept to go like, I think maybe we could get something up and running to both give people a thing to socialize around something live, something that can involve the film community and something where we can raise a little bit of money to give to the art house convergence and other kind of charitable organizations that were popping up around that time. And I know for me personally, it was like, it, it was a total lifesaver to have that, you know, a couple times a week and to get to socialize even virtually with people. And so, you know, um, getting to spend time bringing some of the different corners of the film Twitter community together um, was really great. Um, and so thanks. Thanks for all of that uh, to you guys for participating. Um, and it's great to hear that people have kind of now taken that on their own and seen like, oh, I can play this over Zoom. I can do this with someone on the other side of the world or my friends when we're not around and, and seeing how that's taken off um, has been great. But to get back to the question you asked me two <laughs> minutes ago, um, as I was kind of saying before we started, there's there's pretty much no better person to see a movie with than Miss Katie Walsh. So if you have not had the pleasure, like I highly, highly recommend it. And so uh, we had a chance, I think it was last year, was it last summer or fall maybe? Yeah, um, I can't remember. It was around then, yeah. Yeah, so sometime last year, New Beverly did a Friday matinee. So it was 2 p.m. Friday afternoon, and uh, we went to go see it. I don't think I had seen Collateral since 2004. I saw it in the theater. Wow. I definitely bought the DVD, probably watched it once or twice, you know, when it came out. And I don't know that I had just had a chance to revisit it. And so seeing it with Katie last year um, was really my first time in a long time. And so a lot of it, played very fresh i did not remember some of the turns in it um and so it was a ton of fun and and when you are watching a movie with katie as i said you are you're in for a ride because you're gonna hear some cackling some howling you know grabbing the armrest if it's suspenseful like there is pretty much no better uh scene partner to be I, witnessing I... a movie with I make my feelings very well known. There's been yes. times where I've been at press screenings just like hating life and just literally like <laughs> flopping around on the chair and like like other colleagues of mine will be like, how'd you like it? Okay, I can <laughs> yeah. tell you were like struggling there. Ka Katie, so I, I'm not exactly someone who hides my feelings. Katie, it's predestined that we would have the best time watching a movie because Maria Lewis and I, Famously, Australia had a movie show with David Stratton and Margaret Pomerantz around for like 20 years. They were our Siskel and Ebert. They were this huge phenomena. David was like a very stuffy intellectual, like 
highfalutin, uh, great, great Australian critical historian and mind and programmer and amazing. And Margaret started out as a producer and she and David had the most amazing chemistry, like everything he liked, she hated. And it was such <laughs> so fun when there was a convergence where they both loved something or they both hated something because it was usually like chalk and cheese. And Maria Lewis and I were seeing the incredible Jerry Butler flick, um, Maria Lewis of I ran Jerry Butler over with my car fame. Um, (laughs) and, uh, we're seeing Olympus has fallen together where it was just so completely psychopathically jingoistic (laughs) that we were laughing at all of the horrific (laughs) death being dealt out. And they actually said, they're like, Oh, it's an okay movie. And the audience uh, that we saw it with were, um, you know, inappropriately laughing in this thing. (laughs) And and we were like, we played the clip. You made it. Friends were like, we did it. Because yes. yeah, it was so dumb. Um, shout out to Olympus Has Fallen, a really dumb movie that's quite enjoyable. Um, but yeah, so I'm jealous nonetheless. He saw it at the New Beverly, also jealous. New Beverly. That was a really yeah. fun screening because it played like almost like a comedy. And like yeah. I know people get mad at like people will complain that like rep cinema uh, audiences kind of laugh too much at things or they're like a little too primed for it. I happen to love it. Like I have been to a bunch of really fun screenings at New Beverly. I mean, if, if I was seeing like, I don't know, come and see or something and people were like <laughs> laughing their asses off, I'd probably be annoyed. But um, for collateral, like like there are funny lines and it's funny and like the way it- that it, you know, foreshadows things. And if you know the movie and the way that he says things like, it's funny. It was a blast. That was a really fun screening. Yo, it's, homie, is that my briefcase? I was just going to say, that's a hilarious line. That's incredible. A hula- it's a hilarious line, the way that he delivers it. Yo, homie. Is that my briefcase? Is your briefcase? Yeah, it is. Why? You want it back? I want your wallet. What else you got for me? Huh? No, rep screenings rule. If you go to the right ones, like there's an Australian classic flick I saw the other day called The Man from Snowy River, which was made in like 1982, huge, like seminal Aussie film. And the crowd, I was going there for a Q&A and I was watching the crowd during this giant set pieces at the end and they were cheering. That's like awesome. they were cheering and clapping at stuff. And I was like, that's, that's fun. Like yeah. that whole, and they were all down. These people have seen this movie for 40 years. Like they've seen it a couple of times. So very exciting. But let's get back to you, Corey. Um, the last time that we danced with you on One Hit Minute Productions, we were talking your, I think now internet renowned. I think you have to go back to the Wayback Machine to discover um, how deep you are in the Paul Thomas Anderson cigarette and red vine community. So this is such a pleasure to jump over to another filmmaker that we're talking about, but tell us about why collateral, why is, why is collateral one of your recent uh, more man sort of resonating films than say Miami Vice? Um, yeah, well, I, 
I, I think the two things that jumped out to me um, as I was, I put it on again this morning, just to kind of refresh um, from the screening last year and the, the two big, you know, bullet points uh, that jumped out to me um, were, uh, were this. So number one, uh, this is Tom Cruise kind of at the end of, but arguably at his peak. And he's on this run, which I'd say is sort of kicked off by Jerry Maguire yeah. and runs through, let's say about War of the Worlds and the movies that he makes in this, you know, nine year span um, is Eyes Wide Shut, Magnolia, Vanilla Sky, Collateral, War of the Worlds. There's a couple others in there as well, but for the most part, they he is working with top tier filmmakers. He's taking on risky, interesting projects. And he's really stretching the idea of what a Tom Cruise movie can be and what he can do with his persona. And he's taking on these darker parts, whether it be Magnolia or his, you know, kind of haunted character in Minority Report or, you know, what he does here, you know, as Vincent, you know, the villain of the piece, you know. And so I think um, I, I, I love, you know, some of the films that Tom Cruise has made in the last couple of decades. But as someone who really sort of came of age as a movie lover, you know, in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, I, I can't help but miss this era when there was just he was the biggest movie star in the world and also kind of, you know, taking some of the biggest chances and helping these filmmakers, you know, make unconventional movies that still made $100 million. You know, Vanilla Sky, yeah. Eyes yeah. Wide Shut, these movies, you know, like that were, you know, summer blockbusters, even Collateral, which you watched today or last year when Caden and I saw it, it's like, I can't believe they released this thing in the summer and it made money <laughs> because it, it, it feels like like such an auteur work now because of, you know, how increasingly homogenized things have gotten. Um, but so that was, um, that was the first thing that jumped out to me. Um, and the second thing, I'll just keep going and we can talk about whatever you want, uh, is the digital photography and how this was really... Um, the first instance I can remember of seeing it in kind of mainstream studio fare. I, I yeah. believe that Attack of the Clones in 2002 was the first um, basically like movie to be digitally shot, at least studio movie to be digitally shot. And then in between there, there were a bunch of Sundance indies, you know, Pieces of April, things like that, that really used that kind of like lo-fi video aesthetic. But Collateral was the first time I remember, you know, two years after Attack of the Clones, seeing a, a summer movie a big studio summer movie with movie stars that was shot in this way and and it's it's wild to look back almost two decades later and how almost avant-garde it looks because he's he's leaning into the graininess and i i think there's a there's a beauty to the photography here that that i think we've lost as the tech has gotten better it's gotten slicker it's gotten shinier and and it doesn't look quite as beautiful as this looks, as weird as that is to say. So th those are the the two things that jumped out to me um, as as maybe things to to talk about. I feel like they're like in the digital photography, especially at night, because I I totally get what you're saying in terms of the it looks too clean and crisp, like almost yes. like the red camera is like too like perfect. And I like how smeary like the lights and stuff look at night and um how leaning into like it's almost like how you would see the lights out of like a a windshield or yes. a or a window where it's like not a perfect image it's kind of like smeared across the night sky so it's like leaning in like digital allows you to open up so much more of that night sky 
um, or like landscape in the dark than you would get on film. And we've talked to the sound designer about how they had to like put more sounds in because of that. Um, because your depth yeah, of field opens up so you can see more stuff happening. So it felt right. like the set, like, I know this is a weird descriptor, but it's like the soundscape was naked because like you're only addressing what's in the foreground and it doesn't feel like it's got the texture until you have to add the layer. So you're like, cause I can see, I can see miles into the background. I can see things happening. I can see a police car. I can see like people walking or, you know, all those sorts of things that you can see in the LA night. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. Attack of the Clones is like the, is one great example to talk about because like that was digital photography only for function. We want digital photography in order to like be able to manipulate this, but we always want it to look like a, you know, a 19 sort of thirties epic Hollywood thing. And we're going to throw aliens in it. We're going to do all that stuff. And it's just all for manipulation where collateral is like unabashed. I'm using this medium specifically because it, it gives me a different view of the world. And it feels like more verite, more like yeah. it, it, it's almost even even now looking at it, it's like shocking to see Tom Cruise up close in this way. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have the um, the kind of remove that film has, the romanticization, the kind of taking it into this more stylized realm. That's the way that audiences were used to seeing movie stars and Tom Cruise. So to sort of even get this grainy up close look at him felt, you know, shocking and, and still feels sort of surprising you know it it feels like a no filter type experience uh but just because we're so used to you know the language of of film at least up until that point yeah and and now that all those cameras that that all these like new arrow and stuff like that they're all everything's reaching for virtual 35 mil like everything's like we have to kill all of this grain we have to kill all this overexposure this easy manipulation by any light and I think that the light, the light symphony in that cab where they can't control how it makes you look like sallow and like a dead person sitting in the back mm -hmm. of the cab, that just plays to the theme of the movie. Like, that's what's so cool about it is like the light will go in, he's overexposed, his, his face starts looking like even more gaunt and evil. And you're like, yeah, no, this, like Michael Mann knows, he, he chose it for a very specific reason and he's going to use it to the nth degree. And uh, yeah, that's what I've always really dug about it myself. And even like, I know it's weird to say, but people were kind of like, well, with the whole UHD format, being a physical media nerd, it's like people like, oh, they did a UHD of collateral. Is it going to look that much better? It actually does. Like it looks even better. <laughs> it looks so cool to mm. see it in the, the, I think it emphasizes everything you're talking about, the extremity of, he pushed it straight away and then other people were like oh yeah we'll do it and and then everyone is just like how do i squash this to make it look like film every time and you get something like zodiac a few years later which is like wants wants to feel like you pulled it out of a out of a, a vault for 1970s films that weren't released and you just want it to look exactly like that and that's what fincher was going for but it's like collateral is like no this is a digital film we want to see everything we want to do it like this well, it's interesting is when Katie and I saw it at the New Beverly, it's projected on 35 millimeter. And so even back then, it, it would the reverse of what's happening now is you getting something shot digitally and then and then transferred to film to be projected, which, you know, today, if it happens at all, it would be shot on film and, and shown digitally for the most part. But I think that's um, interesting. And, and I think that's something has been lost. I, I just think in, in the way that most things look now, I, I think shortly after this, there was also you know, David Lynch with Inland Empire really leaning into yeah. like, 
let's use the limitations of these digital tools and and not try and make them look like film, but try and, you know, find out what's interesting about the way they do look and, and how that frees them up. And um, and yeah, it's been it's been interesting to see the trajectory, both for man and, you know, just the digital photography in general. I also wanted to go back to another thing that you said about the the era of Tom Cruise that we're talking about. Legends only, and, as Katie calls it. I love legends it. Legends only. Legends only. Um, and what you said that was so interesting was no, like helping these auteurs get these really bold movies made. And that is such a thing that I think that we don't talk about enough is like, in order for these movies to get financing, you need a big star in them mm. because that's how they're going to sell in foreign territories or wherever, you know, or just because people say, oh, Tom Cruise is attached. So it's like he just fundamentally understands movie making, like nuts and bolts of it, but also the the financial picture of it, too. Right. And yep. even like they're putting Maverick back in theaters right before for two weeks, like right before um, uh avatar comes out so they're just like let's line up those imax screens baby <laughs> and it's like such a move with like i don't know i mean i know it has nothing to do with glass onion but everyone's like why is netflix like taking glass onion out of theaters this is all the controversy we're talking about in the u.s right now but no no um it's and also i just want to say australia had a glass onion run at oh they did that oh. we yeah like a, a short theater run at mostly rep theaters and top gun is going back to a couple of big theaters in sydney and especially because a couple of theaters have gotten the new, there's like a new digital projection, like the highest end 4K digital projection oh, ready ready for Avatar. Oh, and okay. they're like, oh, we're going to show it on the new digital projection for like, like in lieu of IMAX because Sydney's IMAX theater shut to get refurbished and get turned okay. into this gigantic hotel. But um, but the new IMAX screen is not ready till next year. And I'm like, I just imagine post-Avatar like, Top Gun Maverick's going to get another couple of week run as soon as IMAX opens in Australia. It's like, it's going to happen. There's the yeah. IMAX version's coming here. But yeah, no, there's, the same thing's happening. A lot of people are talking about it. Just can, his, can I, but just uh, his like knowledge of like film financing and production and like, I just feel like he's weirdly a genius yeah. at this. No, and I, I think that was, I mean, in in the era of, of certainly less franchises, like that, that was the strategy. The strategy was, and Tom Cruise built his career on, finding the absolute best filmmakers and having them make his movies, you know, no, throughout the entire career. I mean, certainly once he'd sort of like post Top Gun, the original, you know, and through the nineties, like he wanted to work with the best and he became the biggest movie star by working with the best. It like, wasn't like the math wasn't that hard, you know, it wasn't until um, later when you, he, he kind of, became a producer and made Mission Impossible and sort of learned to, okay, let me mix it up where every couple years I'll have another one of these. So even if the riskier projects, you know, maybe don't always pan out, you know, I'll have this to go back to. And I think there there are still a couple stars who abide by that. I think uh, Brad Pitt does a pretty great job of, of still trying to get these movies made. Leonardo DiCaprio obviously works with like three filmmakers, but like <laughs> they're the best ones. Um, so it, it is possible. Um, but but it I've just been I mean I think it's even higher stakes now to yeah now yeah, yeah. To, totally you know to you have to get like a filmmaker needs a star or bankable entity in order to get their project made I mean obviously I think it was easier in the 90s like it's just like yes yeah, Stanley Kubrick's like sex cult movie <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah like that someone would have made that <laughs> yeah someone would have made it 
I watched but it helps that to have Nicole and Tom in it. <laughs> I was just going to say Harrison Ford is a great model for this too, because back in the day he'd make these hugely, you know, obviously making Star Wars and Indiana Jones series. It's just like, they're so massive. And at that time you look sprinkled throughout these projects are uh, all of my favorite Harrison Ford films that aren't Raiders and aren't Peter Star Weir, Wars. Roman yeah. Polanski, exactly. you know, you get, lots you get, of get, interesting directors. Yeah. Katzenberg ran Paramount, took the witness script to, to Harrison Ford goes, I love this script. Do you want to make it? Harrison read it like, I love it. Who do you want to work with? He goes, I really like the work of Peter Weir. Bang. Handshake. Done. They start working. He gets an Oscar nomination. Weir gets an Oscar nomination. They can't even go to the Academy Awards because what are they doing? They're making the Mosquito Coast. And then like Tom Clancy, Clint Present Danger, two Philip Noyce joints, you know, and and uh, and uh, Patriot Games. It's like, bang, straight in. Like he goes and does that. And so in between all of these like gigantic, you know, the Blade Runners of the world and those things, uh, which became more of a cult following. But in between the big ones, he was always just like project, interesting filmmaker, project, interesting filmmaker. So he's got like Ford too has got that kind of weird legends only thing where he likes working with two of the same, like great filmmaker and then go back to a franchise that is ultimately massive. And that, and that enables him to continue making interesting choices. And then some of these smaller movies, you know, the fugitive, for example, absolute monster unexpectedly. So, but yeah, he's kind of got that thing where he's, you know, less of a producer, but more of an actor just likes going, really lucrative project all right i'm going to make three of the other things that i want to make and then now extremely lucrative project i'm going to make three of the other things and yeah his career is so fascinating like that as well he's like he and cruz are very you know cruz took that torch in the 90s where ford was um you know ford ford was there but he wasn't the biggest whereas like late 70s early 80s that was all harrison ford you know you throw him in a movie it's going to make it's going to be number one at the box office when it comes out Blake, I just have to say, Tom Cruise is staring over your shoulder. Uh, he is. He's right there. <laughs> He's right there. Is that the Amy Nicholson book? Yes. Yeah, Amy's book. And I actually have Amy's book right next to me on my table. <laughs> it's always here. People look. It's always just here. just listening to you talk, and I'm like, that's yeah. Tom Cruise's face. That's Tom Cruise's face. <laughs> yeah. Of course it is. It's good. What You know, um, product placement, as Corey pointed out, you know, we, we're not even CGIing the Cinephile game night. It's the real one this time. <laughs> On the it's shelf. Good, it's Appreciate good real it. estate. It's good real mm -hmm. estate. The the other thing that it, it's not made, it, not quite as widespread, but it is a thought that I have had recently, which is um, a thing that kind of came up while rewatching Collateral, which is I saw it last year with Katie. I put it on this morning. I forgot Mark Ruffalo is in this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, and he's great in this movie. And when he yeah. showed up, I thought, oh, that's right. Mark Ruffalo's in this. Yeah, and he, then plays, as soon he as plays he shows Jabron up, Fanning. Jabron Fanning. Jabron Fanning. That's what we started uh, calling him. <laughs> the hair, the goatee, the earring, perfect. Um, and as soon as he shows up, I remember, oh, yes, and Javier Bardem is in this movie. And it, it's like, you know, beyond. The cast kind is of, insane. Yeah. Yes, beyond Cruz and Fox and Jada Pinkett. It's like there's a deep bench of actors Peter that are Berg. surrounding. Yeah, don't yeah. forget the Berghive. Let's <laughs> shout him out. That's right. Um, that are surrounding Cruz. And, and, and the same thing as working with top tier directors is when you have an ensemble of people as talented as, as the people that he's surrounding himself with. He looks better. Do you know what I yeah. mean? And yeah. and there's been this thing recently, and I, I literally I've noticed it in a couple movies. I don't know what it is. Uh, I'm gonna throw them out, and they're quite random. But it's okay. it's the trailer for A Man Called Otto with Tom Hanks, right? I haven't watched it yet. Okay, it's Ticket to Paradise with George Clooney and Julia Roberts. Um, Bad movie. 
and it's Jack Reacher 2, uh, which I think is Kobe Smolders and maybe Aldous Hodge. The thing is, these movies, you get the sense that they spend all the money on the movie star and almost everyone else in the cast, it's not that they're like, it's that I have mostly faces I have not seen before or sort of like this actor was on a TV show maybe and not the level of like every face you're going to see is either going to be the greatest character actor that's ever popped up or another movie star supporting the lead movie star making them look even better. And I think that's another thing that seems I'm like, okay, you've got, you know, Caitlin Deaver and George Clooney and Julie Roberts. And then I don't think I've literally recognized a single other person in the cast for Ticket to Paradise. And I'm like, you have two of the biggest movie stars of the last two decades. You couldn't get a bunch of, you know, interesting, funny, you like get people Jennifer I know yes, to show up on the <laughs> island for a minute. It's, it, it just, it's like, it's a thing that I take note of. And I'm like, what's going on here? I was just gonna say that movie was already super fun, Ticket to Paradise, because of those two. But if you added Jennifer Coolidge for one scene as a totally drunken Westerner just hanging out at that hotel, that movie adds a star. It's a star. Completely. She should have played the woman on the plane who is stuck (laughs) in between them and then finds them later. Right. And the the thing about this is is the movie stars look better when they're surrounded by the best people. And it's like, it's a thing where they can't carry it on their own. And so it's weird to me to see these gigantic stars of the 90s and early 2000s. I don't want to say slumming it, but it, but it's the thing where it's like, where's the deep bench? And when you see Collateral and you see how deep the bench is, um, it, it's it's something that I, I miss being a more frequent occurrence. Glass well, Onion is the other one recently where there's a yeah. cameo from, and I'm, it's not spoiling absolutely anything. It's actually fascinating and distracting. Ethan Hawke pops up. Mm. And I'm like, what was he doing in Greece? I sat there for like five minutes in the movie <laughs> complete. What was he doing? What film was he filming? What was around? I was just like, I'm sitting and then I go, but stop. You can look at this up after. And I'm like, right. back, to, back to watching it in the theater. But I was just like, oh, that's, that's what it is. It's like you get a huge thing. And it's not just then the bankable cast. Okay, we've got a key feature ensemble. It's like every other person that pops up and top, Cruise, which is it's a smaller movie that does this, but Jack Reacher, the first Jack Reacher, which I think is excellent. Um, the fact that Robert Duvall turns up like an hour totally. and ten minutes into the movie, I'm like, this is movies. And and Warner like Herzog, a, and, yes. and those things help. And then I watched the second one actually for the B-side podcast with Dan and Connor, part of the film stage, and I was looking at the cast going, what happened? They, they they spent the whole paycheck on Cruise, and there was just nothing left over, even from the first one. I I didn't get it. Yeah, Cruise no. is always better with an ensemble. I think like with fun people to bounce off of. Yeah. Um, we're talking Top Gun. Mission the goose. mission movies. Mi- I mean Simon Pegg. Yeah. He needs a goose. Yeah. He... <laughs> and Jamie Fox, what a goose. Yes. Yeah. What a goose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think he knows that as as a star and a producer that he's better with other people around him. But also, I mean, I'm just going to say Michael Mann always has a deep bench. Man's got a bench. We were Mm -hmm. talking to Jordan Harper and he was like, one of my favorite actors is in Miami Vice. He has no lines. He has has like one line. And he's like, he's an incredible character actor. And he just like shows up as like Aryan brother number two. 
and he gets shot in the face or something, you know, right in the Aryan Brotherhood scene. He gets shot in the face in like four seconds in that scene. You know, it's right. um, crazy. Like so Forrest Gump. that's not just Gump. like a glorified, you know, stuntman. That's like an incredible character actor. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Like Forrest Gump, he's a man with a bench. So you got to give him that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's he's, true. But even um, we discovered, as I think it was part of our operatives and also part of like our great people who've been on the show, like Justin Liebman. It's like Dennis Farina was meant to play the uh, Bruce McGill part in this movie mm. and then got, was unwell and couldn't be a part of it. And Val Kilmer for the longest time, like literally in pre-production had meetings, scripts, don't know what happened, was going to play Fanning. So then can you imagine a cast like that already is stacked yeah. with a massive bench of people if Dennis Farina rolls in as a cop and then an hour Val, into the movie, an hour into the movie and yeah. you're like, it would just be, it would be like ecstasy. You'd just be like, yeah. Oh my God, this is every Michael Mann thing I love. Like it's just all coming at you. So yeah, I think it's really incredible that, and, and good filmmakers just know just cast living daylights out of it. And that's, what's really admirable about a young filmmaker like Ryan Johnson. Clearly when you can get like Ethan, Hawk to come in and test people for COVID in your movie, basically, um, and then leave. Um, give them the cure. Give them Spoiler. the cure for COVID. Spoilers. Um, to, to, to go. Um, actually, Glass Onion, really great COVID movie. But um, the I, I'm just always, I'm like, okay, that's that just shows that people are desperate to work with this guy and want to do absolutely anything that puts them in their in their wheelhouse. And so, yes, they're going to come in and do it. It's It feels special. It feels so out of time. Like, all of my favorites, even like I was watching, I know this is a, a Katie movie, Blue Steel recently. And I like, love Blue Steel. Blue Nick Steel. Nolte? Gen- no, oh, no, no. This- no. I'm, I'm thinking of Blue, Blue Chips. Chips. Sorry, yeah. Blue Steel, the Catherine Bigelow. The yeah, Catherine, Catherine Bigelow, Bigelow movie. Like Richard Jenkins, who at that time was just a character actor, comes in and plays an absolute shitbag lawyer. And he's an asshole and he's, you don't like him at all. But he just comes in and he just makes his chunk of the movie 10 times better because he's just a murderer. And then you go, okay, cool, great. This movie is really just cast within an inch of its life. So good. Terrific. I well, love, the- love, love Clancy Brown in that movie. Clancy Brown. <laughs> he's Un- so dreamy. Uh, he, I was okay. going to say, he's he's <laughs> Dirtbag Hall of Fame, Clancy Brown. <laughs> That's his cleanest dirtbag ever, Katie. I love an early 90s Clancy Brown role. Okay, <laughs> enough, enough. <laughs> it's never enough. We're going back to this. You know that. Pet Cemetery. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Clancy Brown. Anyone? Anyone? Oh Carnival, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 No, Katie wants the earlier, the the fresh out of Highlander. She okay. Ripped out of Highlander. <laughs> yes. She wants him cleaned up a little, just enough to know he's still a dirt bag. And then, yeah, Bob's your uncle. Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, I was also going to say, you know who I love in Blue Steel is young, young, young Kevin Dunn. Do you know who Kevin Dunn is? He's such yes. a great character actor. Is the from Veep? Uh, he, I remember him mostly from The Wire. He's like, I think he plays like a young cop chief in um, Blue Steel. You would recognize him instantly. Oh, Kevin Dunn. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, yes. He's always and, good. Yeah, and his sister is also a, like a character actress. I think her name is like Lori Dunn or something. And they're, you would recognize, they're in everything. But yeah. I love him so much. Kevin Dunn, the, the horny dad in Transformers. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, right. for, for, for most of the public. Kevin Dunn, yeah. also a Michael Mann alum. He did Luck. 
um, mm-hmm. the TV series, the the Milchin Man. Talk he played the me. horse, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, sorry, Kevin. Yeah, sorry, got the show canceled. He, he was sorry. in Veep, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he. Yeah, um, I'm just looking at the Blue Steel cast. It's insane. It's so good. Yeah, very good movie. Very and, good. Movie. And I think when you when you have this deep bench and you're basically you're not just supporting the movie star, you're 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 setting up people to become stars themselves. You look at where Jamie Foxx and Javier Bardem were in their careers. I think this was uh, Bardem's first major American role. He'd yeah. been in Al- Almodovar movies. He'd been in some indies. But this was like the first studio project he was in and predates his big No Country breakout and Oscar win, right? By yeah. a couple years. It was it was the big American role that got him in the conversation because like um, in the No Country lore, they wanted to cast him, but they had Mark Strong, terrific mm. British actor, on the bench waiting to play Sugar. Oh my God. Were, yeah, like, because they, they were just like, he was there, like, in the wings, and and then Javier did it, and then, like, yep, that's it. That's that's it. that's the guy. That's our guy. Um, but, yeah, so this was his first major English language role, and I, I just love that's that's a great bit of casting, but, yeah, it's, it's so underrated. It's also why we all completely continue, whether you love the films or not, you froth a Quentin Tarantino project coming into existence because every one of the best actors in the world wants to be in it like i'll do five minutes i don't care like it's even like john ham talking about top gun they're like oh they want you for this top gun role it's a pretty thankless role you just have to kind of scowl and you know um and and shout at tom cruise most of the movie he's like i'll do it for anything just get me in a movie with tom cruise with tom cruise i, I know and, in and a movie don't you yes. dare negotiate out of this or say that i cost too much i'll freaking do it it's, it's top gun it's tom cruise i get to yell at him i've got great scenes with him like stop what are you talking about i want to do the movie and now a word from our sponsors as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming i wish i had used indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com podcast that's indeed.com podcast terms and conditions apply And for Jamie Foxx here, I mean, he's kind of playing the the dweeb character, you know, who eventually kind of, you know, uh, you know, gets his uh, uh, <laughs> gets his courage by the end of the movie. 
but he's, you know, he's, he's had a few roles, you know, he, he, any given Sunday was before this, like he mm-hmm. was starting to break out of the, I'm in comedies, I'm Jamie Foxx from In Living Color, but it was really, I mean, this was a few months before Ray, and this was kind of teeing him up for Jamie Foxx, the movie star run, which culminates with your guys' faith, you know, the Miami Vice and the excess of that. But it, but I think it's getting the opportunity to be in this two-hander with Cruz was, you know, Cruz kind of giving him the pat on the shoulder of like, you know, you're ready, let's do this. And and what an opportunity and, you know, what a role to to get to do that. Yeah, he really got to flex. I think the the best Jamie Foxx performances are when he's not cool. Yes. Like mm-hmm. when he's when he's you know in Ali. When like Electro Mike. in the Amazing Spider-Man too. Yes, Blake. <laughs> I'm still. <laughs> We're gonna listen, clear out for this. Listen, I actually like the that nerd, movie. the glasses, I, the I, hair. I actually really like that movie in the Spider-Man universe because it's just like a Hammer horror picture. Like I think the whole movie just plays like something out of time so we, let's not get distracted on that but um <laughs> but but no i i really like you know obviously miami vice being the a clear exception because i have such a love for that movie for that movie and obviously this is the show that we've shared it but even django begins with him being a slave and completely oppressed and downtrodden and then he eventually sort of comes into himself and becomes this huge badass by the end of the movie but there's a there's an arc there and same with this even max is like self-actualization is very kind of muted it's not like a huge story arc he doesn't become an assassin at the end of this thing and become you know whatever it's it's a reverse hitch it's it's (laughs) Cruz teaching fox like this is how to stand up for yourself these are the rules reverse hitch that that's definitely a sex move but we're not going to go into that Oh my gosh. I, I mean, I do, I do, I've spoken at length about how much I love Jamie Foxx playing a nerd because he is so cool. And we did hear from Justin Lieberman, who was on the set that like, Jamie Foxx was like bringing these like Instagram baddies <laughs> to set pre into whatever an Instagram baddie in 2004 was probably music video girl um, uh, to set <laughs> and like distracting every, all the entire crew. And the man is like, can you go sit in the trailer, please? Because <laughs> my, my gaffers aren't key, doing anything. My key grip cannot grip anymore. anymore. He's, grip, he's gripping so hard when you're standing next to him. We need to stop this. Yeah, but so like it to, for him to just be like, yeah, I'm Jamie Fox. I'm Jamie Fox, and then him being like fumbling a sandwich and like <laughs> flipping through his, you know, his his little Mercedes catalog. He's so good though. And he brings so much like heart and soul to it. And, and he's such a good actor. Like you forget how good of an actor Jamie Foxx is. He's just, he's, he can do anything. As a talent, a guy who can do stand up, because obviously that is a incredibly difficult skill set in and of itself. So be a hugely successful stand up sketch comedian, an amazing musician, like, like ridiculously, could totally just have been a musician and been great and had a huge fan base and all that sort of stuff. And an Academy Award nominated <laughs> caliber actor at the same time. It's like, it's insane. He, I'm it's, surprised it's he's crazy. never done a show to get the EGOT because he'd be close. He could totally do that. He's, he, he does he have a gra- he's won a Grammy. No? I don't know. One of those Kanye songs like Gold Digger. He might be Maybe. close. Yeah, he might have. If if, if you get if you got awarded it for being a part of the song, then he he surely yes he he won a Grammy for a song called "Blame It." 
Ah, well, there you go. So I'm surprised he hasn't gone and done the musical route because... You should do a play. Yeah. Get that Tony. Get that Tony, baby. And then go do a, pres- a prestige television show. L- listen, <laughs> I'm having so much fun watching Sylvester Stallone in what our friend Sean Burns calls full meatball mode in Tulsa King. Um, <laughs> and it's it's uh, it's not a great show, but man, it's fun. <laughs> it's so good. I'm having a really good time um, watching that. Tulsa King, yeah. Just full meatball. It's the best. Um, <laughs> it's it's sensational. But no, I, I think um, the the touchstone of this movie also, and you said it early, way earlier, Corey, is like, I can't believe they put this movie out when they put it out as a $100 million movie because the only place we can find really lean, exceptionally smart genre movies that are very ambitious, like whether it's aesthetically ambitious or like artistically I feel like recently and I've started I've only I'm like sort of just dipping my toe in the water because so many of my very like cinephile you know speaking of like film stage the film stage boys and stuff like that and a lot of that crew from our cinephile game nights is just not sleeping on Shudder because Shudder is like creating these new original films and horror films and thrillers and stuff like that with like exciting and talented people making like it but there's no stars there's not not a star in the world but you watch these like really exciting thrilling movies and then you keep an eye out for the next crop of talent that's eventually going to make big movies or be swallowed up by Disney. Um, But I I, I love that this big kind of genre movie could play. And like, it's only later, which is in the same sort of neon noir subgenre of like the drives of the world that come out, like that that's kind of the the last gasp of these kind of movies that could just come out, play huge in theaters, be super entertaining. Cause now it's like, no, we're not making that. It's going to Netflix. See ya. Like get out of here. You're not coming into our theater. Goodbye. I, I also loved around this time the, the brief scene in this when um, Ruffalo gets on the elevator with Cruz and Fox. And I just feel like that moment is so electric because it's not just playing into the suspense of the movie of, you know, him coming right up against them. For me, it's also playing on the meta level of Cruz facing off against this potential successor of, are you going to be the next generation of movie star? And I think he had the same thing. Uh, in Minority Report with Colin Farrell is you feel that extra spark of is Colin Farrell going to be the next me? You know, is he, is he coming to take me down? And I think there's there's like a a bit of chemistry there where it, you know, it's it's to paraphrase Cruz in, in Maverick. It's, you know, you, you may be replacing me someday, sir, but not today. Is, yeah. is, you know, and then so still when not- he takes him out later in the movie. It's it's a kind of working on that meta level of like, nope, it's still me, Tom Cruise, biggest movie star. <laughs> it, and and if you'd hear Glenn, the great Glenn Powell on um, the Devotion promo tour is talking about how He's developed this relationship with Tom Cruise, who's getting him flight lessons and getting him like, and telling him he gave him skydiving as a gift and said, Glenn isn't allowed to go skydiving like in tandem for his first jump. He has to skydive by himself and he had to train. And he told a story about how he couldn't find the ripcord on like where he should have on his first jump and and he's like oh maybe i'm gonna die because tom cruise is testing me to become the next him (laughs) and maybe i'm gonna die and i'm like that's why i like glenn powell i'm like yeah man that's you want tom cruise's career he's he's like he's like this is the my this is my guy he's gonna he's gonna be the next mate i'm all for it i'm all for glenn being the next tom cruise i'm in the howard house sam howard my wife wants glenn powell to be the next tom cruise let me tell you (laughs) 
She's clocked him in uh, Everybody Wants Some. How many oh, years ago was that? Away. Loved was him in that. So good. Yeah, Rick Linklater, yeah. another filmmaker. So you guys great. set it up on Netflix. Yeah. So good. Is Excellent that with, rom-com. Is that with Zoe, Zoe Deutsch? Zoe Deutsch. That's my girl. Yes, my wife has also watched from, that. Also from times. Everybody Wants Some. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't even Reunion. Together. The yeah. reunion. Yeah, fi fi finally. Um, I do like... That's a lost art, Corey. I'm so glad you brought that up. Of the lost art of casting absolute murderers in every role. And that's why I think Prestige TV, if there was one ingredient that gets talked about in like why TV dominance is something, it's because now you have to wait for like Game of Thrones, House of Dragon to get like seven or eight awesome actors that are all playing off of each other or at least teasing the prospect of playing off of one another in one scene or like even Disney recently with Andor. Um, we don't talk about Star Wars in public, um, so we're not going to say anything else. But, like, you have these amazing scenes where you've got, like, a show, like, just at a high level that has Diego Luna. It has Forrest Whitaker. It has Stellan Skarsgård. And you're like, all of these actors are in this show, and this is the only place that we can see them all play. But in, you know, in the 90s, that was Copland. You know, you'd wait for a Copland, and you'd have De Niro and Cartel and, you know, like... Um, uh, Ray Liotta and you'd have all these great actors that could just come into a, a, a small indie movie or The Yards I watched the other day James Gray's film speaking of uh, you know a recent filmmakers doing autobiographies um, but yeah like stacked cast absolutely Murderers Row Jimmy Khan Faye Dunaway like Joaquin Phoenix you know um, um, Marky Mark like it's incredible to see how now that's all just changed and uh, Michael Mann's still a director that can make some of that happen which is the best and the next film that's going to have the best cast is Cocaine Bear. Oh, yeah. That's a good cast. <laughs> you guys watch the trailer. Starring no, Ray Liotta as, as his last role as the Cocaine Bear. Is, is what Ray I've Liotta is in, is in Cocaine Bear. <laughs> Rest wow. in peace. R.I.P. Oh, my God. We're going to see him one more time <laughs> in the in Elizabeth the... Banks film, <laughs> Cocaine Bear, which I'm, I'm excited for. <laughs> I'm excited to see what she does with it. It's... It looks so silly. It's it's yeah, but it's just it's gonna be incredibly silly. It's, I, hope it, it, I hope it makes a, a ton of money for everyone. But I involved. was like watching the trailer, being like, "And out, that guy, <laughs> that guy who whose name I don't know, but I just like I recognize his face. Like that's it's a fun feeling to have that. And I was gonna say about Andor, which I haven't watched yet, but I would really like to watch. Um, it's Tony Gilroy. So like he's you know one of these '90s guys who's like, let's get a bunch of British theater actors who are just amazing and like fill out the cast with that. Yes. I I just finished actually watching it with uh with my wife and she really liked it and I liked it okay, but I did feel like there it it more than anything I think when they try and do these large movie projects as TV shows you feel the constraints and not always in a positive way. So as much as I, I completely get why people are flipping for it and the Gilroy, you know, respecting the audience and doing something that does have these deeper themes and, and, and more adult. Um, it, it's like, it's, there are some scenes to me between, as you said, like two great actors, but it feels a little bit static. Like it feels sort of like there isn't life outside the frame. And now granted, Star Wars is not collateral and whatever planet they're on is not downtown Los Angeles. But the thing about 
this movie is you feel the life outside the edges of the frame. You feel yeah. like this exists. Yeah. And when those guys come down the alley and you see everyone walking down the street, there's never a moment that rings false or you feel like this this world isn't full of life. And, I, and the thing that kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way about Andor was I always felt like two actors were on a stage talking to each other, delivering great dialogue, doing it greatly, but in something that felt so hermetically sealed. E even the kind of, you know, the, the planets, it's like, okay, so your set is fantastic and it's two blocks long and we keep going back to that street. <laughs> and I, I think that's why TV, you know, as much as it might be the new film, it's a different art form, the same way yeah. plays are a different art form. And, and it's not to slight any actors for moving between the two mediums, but it it is a different medium. And I think it does it has different strengths and and weaknesses. So it's it been interesting to watch, I think. I, fr I froth Andor. I really like it. I totally understand where you're coming from there. But I, I the the thing, even with Andor, like I was watching the previous Obi-Wan series. And again, I don't talk about Star Wars on the internet. It's a, it's a fucking fool's errand. Um, but <laughs> I would just say, there are like three stormtroopers in that show. I'm like, you couldn't pay for some more fucking stormtroopers. How many, how many six feet tall people could you get? I, go to a Comic-Con and pay like a hundred bucks and bring those guys back a hundred bucks a day just to come down in their own stormtrooper outfit, which they own. That's probably got like cool, like little particulars and stuff. Get them to walk around. How many, what are we talking about? That's what I'm talking about. You're feeling the limitations, yeah. you know, in Star Wars, you're adapting this giant blockbuster thing and trying to make it small. And the people who love Star Wars are going, you know, but wait, isn't it, you know, isn't there supposed to be more? Isn't it supposed to be bigger? Yeah. Um, you know, whereas something like Mad Men or The Wire or whatever is conceived and perfectly suited towards the scale and, and scope of TV. But yeah. But yeah, anyway, was, not. I was going to shout out. I was trying to, when you were saying, I'm talking about a movie that um, feels like it has a life beyond the edges, like Collateral does. I was going to shout out a movie that I know you just watched that I think is so good. It's an LA noir that came out this year, starring your girl, Aubrey Plaza. Mm. Emily the criminal is so good. And it's, I think a first time feature from John Patton Ford. Um, and she plays this sort of down on her luck, like student debt person who has to like do these credit card scams and she becomes, she gets higher and higher. But it's one of these things where you're like, oh, that weird like set of people, like there's a whole thing going on with them or these like Armenian gangsters, like there's a whole thing going on with them. And like, that you're just getting her story as she moves through this world, but there's such a bigger world outside of it. Um, I, and you only gave it two and a half stars on Letterboxd and I got so I, mad at you. <laughs> Corey is a notorious <laughs> under star giver. He's Let been doing explain. this as long as I got, I've known him. I, I got so, I, I Ben David Grabinski, friend of the show, got, so mad, so, got so mad at me because I gave under siege two, two and a half stars. He's like, nah, nah, like, this is where I draw the line. Okay. I'm like, on Under Siege 2? Like, that the first the, one rips. That was the funniest exchange I've ever seen on Twitter. Was Ben David, all caps, outraged at your rating of Under Siege 2. But that's how I react to Corey's star rating. Yeah, I it I I really liked Emily the Criminal, and I totally agree with what you're saying. And I also love Aubrey Plaza. I just I I think like a lot of people, you she came out of the comedy world and UCB, and she was in Funny People, and obviously Parks and Rec. 
I think the first time I really noted her as like a dramatic actress. Did you watch the show Legion that she was on? No, I didn't she see got that. to play like it was kind of in the X-Men-ish universe from Noah Hawley, who did the Fargo TV show. But she gets to kind of play this wild character who ends up being lots of different characters. And it was so far outside of what she had done. And also Ingrid Goes West was kind of a darker role, maybe around that time. I think she's like one of the most. That's a fun movie. Ingrid Goes West is a terrific movie. Kind of surprising and interesting. Becoming a really good actor. I I think Emily the Criminal might be her best performance, but I also really love Black Bear, if you guys can check out. Oh, yeah, I liked her in Black Bear, too. Kind of Cassavetes-ish in terms of her, like, commitment um, to that. And and White Lotus, best show on TV. She's great right now. um, I just have to say, because it would be so remiss of me, the Aubrey Plaza thirst is a really special part of the internet. Like, I feel like it's almost universal. Every time there's a new photo shoot, people are just posting stuff going, respectfully, just respectfully posting yeah, this, and, just ever so respectfully. It's so, like, um, it, it's like people are trying to tamp it down. or something. Like, people are, like, just <laughs> keeping, it. <laughs> keeping it keeping it on the DL or just keeping it try, kind of measured, but you can just tell that people are caged lions, right? They're just, like... <laughs> I don't know if you guys have been down the rabbit hole on this, but if you just go on YouTube and start watching her talk show appearances over the years, they are so like wild and conceptual and she'll be like dressed as a witch in one and just like, is she doing a bit here? Is she serious? Like how much is this? She like pulling one over on the host. She's really funny and surprising and, and weird and interesting and. So recommend it if you have, you know, some time to kill before bed or something. Just Aubrey Plaza should be in Ferrari. Why she, is she not in Ferrari? Because <laughs> she's in Megalopolis, right? Aren't they yeah, shooting that now? But, yeah. She, well, Coppola. Listen, I will tease that I was like, I have a role that I think Aubrey Plaza should play in Heat 2, which I'm going to tease to the Heat 2 book club that people can jump over. So they can just jump over, shimmy mm. over there after you listen to this. Um, it will eventually appear in the Heat 2 book club. But I, no, I, I the one reason why is because Pe- Penelope Cruz is so hot that you just couldn't have a movie with Penelope Cruz and Aubrey Plaza in it. Otherwise, the internet would melt down. <laughs> like, I have, that's my, my 100% belief. It's, you know, and- Sh- Shailene Woodley's the other girl in that. And I'm like, okay. Understood. Good actor. Yep. Terrific. If you had Aubrey Plaza in that movie, I wouldn't be able to watch it objectively ever. It just wouldn't happen. And, and Penelope is playing the titular Ferrari. Is that Yeah, absolutely. Correct? She is yeah, a Ferrari. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yes. And, we cannot af- and, and we cannot afford her. None of us could afford a Ferrari. Um, um, but to, to go back to in my own defense of, of Katie's <laughs> my critique so, of my star I'm, ratings. I'm so mad at your star ratings. Is... And- I, yeah, I'll, I'll just say in in my own personal defense, like my logic is number one, I, I treat Letterboxd like my diary and not so much as social platform, even though I know obviously people could follow me or see my ratings on there. Um, now I know I can't then, rate anything with Ben David on there. It's like a I whole. don't rate, I don't do star ratings. On yeah, Letterboxd. see, the coward's way out. So everything's four stars in your mind. We're just projecting. No, I, I keep track and I, I basically think like, if 2001 A Space Odyssey is a five-star movie, there's got to be a couple stars between that and something that's pretty good. And so I, I think everything kind of you goes judge down everything the... off 2001. I, I judge everything against. <laughs> I don't judge it against itself and its own potential. I know some 
critics or, or movie lovers sort of do like this was the best version of the movie it's trying to be. Yeah, I do it at my personal enjoyment level against every movie that I've ever seen yeah. for all time. And so I for it to be a five star movie, I feel it like I, I can't justify it. I feel it in my seat when I'm watching it. And so um, let's even to take it back to, to collateral. Um, I'll say I think it is a top tier popcorn movie you know made by obviously top tier filmmaker but whereas like heat is a masterpiece that that maybe is a popcorn premise is elevated to art this one still feels like it stays in popcorn land you know what i mean no. like it's not the the characters are are, are i get i get what in, in movie land you know I vincent get, I... does not exist in real life like whereas vincent hannah feels like this is a guy that could and does exist, whereas Vincent is a movie character. And that is great, and he's a great movie character, but there's a difference. And I, I don't think Mann is trying to make something that feels real. I think he is is delivering the script, which is a great movie setup. Yeah. And, and that's where it lands. How many stars are you giving Collateral? Say it now. Could be three and a half, could be four, depending <laughs> on the day. I would say if, this. If I'm watching it with Katie, it's four out of five. Otherwise, uh, by myself, maybe three and a half. I would, I, I would say this. I have a hard and fast rule before I get to what I would rate like this movie particularly is like I have a hard and fast rule, which is if I won't watch the movie again, it it doesn't matter if it's good, but if I won't watch it again, I can't give it more than two and a half stars. Is my personal thing. It's like if I, I mean, and the only rare exception would be something like say Twelve Years a Slave. Terrific movie. I'm never watching it again. I have no desire. Oh, I saw it in a yeah. theater. I saw it in a theater. I love Steve McQueen. That movie is so fucking harrowing and just, uh, and Lupita Nyong'o is absolutely amazing. And Fastbender is outstanding. Um, and the filmmaking. You're not going to go through that. That's again. so, no. that's so interesting. Like I, I, I might write, I might write that because higher. I'm the opposite. I have movies that I watch every year. Yeah. I, I watch movies every year that I, I give three and a half stars to. They're some of my favorite movies of all time. Whereas movies like that are harrowing like that is like a four and a half, five star movie that I've seen twice and haven't watched in nine yeah, years. That's what I'm saying. I, I would give that yeah. five stars, but I would never watch it again. Whereas like, I think of something like, I don't know, I'm going to go to like a freaking random one. Richard Gere made a really good movie. It's called Arbitrage. I watched it once. It was good. That's a two and a half star movie. I will never watch it again. I have no desire to revisit it. So then like for me, I'm like, the rewatchability factors into that. So, for sure. example, the show that this, uh, the, the 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 film that this show takes its name after, Miami Nice. I would absolutely give this movie five star. Like Miami Vice, uh, Heat's a five star movie, but Miami Vice is a for me a five star movie. And mm -hmm. and and whereas Collateral, at the very least, I'd be like four and a half because it's just got like it's got kind of everything that I would do. But if I had to like delineate the Michael Mann movie ratings, like if I could give six stars to one movie, it would be heat. And I, you know, if I could give six stars to another, it might be all the president's men. Um, but you know, like that's the kind of like, I think that Michael Mann's batting average is even with blackout, which Katie and I've talked about. It's like, I've now watched blackout several times and I'd probably give that movie three stars because I could watch it again. And I could, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's ambitious. It's got some fantastic mm -hmm. elements, but yeah, that's one rule where I'm like, if I watch it and I'm like, I would never watch that again. I can't justify personally on my letterbox to be like, that's a five-star movie. Whereas like, if I see something like, I'm going to watch that, like Top Gun Maverick, unabashed, straight up, five. 10 out of 10, five stars, <laughs> no question. I'm like, I've now watched it six and maybe after talking to our friends, um, Charles and Drew for the Light the Fuse podcast again about it, I think I watched it that day, like scenes from it, like 
I watched like eight scenes over and over again. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a movie that's easy five stars. I'm going to watch it again and again and again and again. Can I say, and that's a movie that I, I saw it, Katie took me to the press screening. So we saw it together, oh. which was incredible and so much fun. And it played so well that I almost didn't believe it was as good as it was, you know? And so I think I had sort of actually underrated it the first time. And I went back and saw it again a few months later at the Alamo in New York. And I bumped it up a half star. And I thought this was even better than I gave it credit for the first time. I, I didn't understand how well built structurally the screenplay is, the scene to scene transitions, the character beats like it is so well made. I, I think the first time I, I had my defenses up for the how good it felt, you know, when the theme right. kicks in and the font and the music. And I just thought, oh, well, they're just playing the hits here. And the second time I was like, God, this works. Like if you had never seen the first movie, this would still work because it's so well built. Um, just I left I left the theater shouting at people to cancel their subscriptions. <laughs> Netflix is done. <laughs> Amazon Prime done, Disney Plus, cancel it today. Movies are back. Get out of here. You damn streamers. We're back. We're back. Corey, this has been a blast. We have not done enough of um, the spooking of your incredible, like, extension uh, yes, to the Cinefall game about, series. Tell uh, us about Little Cinefall. The new, the new items available. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so um, so Cinephile, a card game, uh, it was kind of the flagship product we put out a couple years ago. We've been making expansion packs and things uh, ever since. Uh, and around that same time, um, I had a child and started looking around for things I could buy as a giant movie nerd that I could share with my son. And there were lots of things out there for very specific niche interests, you know, tennis shoes and hip hop and HP Lovecraft. And like, you wouldn't believe the stuff that existed. <laughs> And yet there wasn't that much out there for movie nerds. Um, and so the first thing that we put out a couple years ago was a book called A is for Auteur, which is an alphabet book of famous directors from A to Z. And it kind of functions as both a coffee table book for grownups. Like if you don't have kids, you know, beautifully designed um, portraits of, you know, some of the greatest filmmakers of all time. But also like it's a rhyming alphabet book that I really, truly do read to my children. <laughs> um, and so the ne the next project, um, which is out now in December, uh, uh, is called My First Movie. Uh, and it's a new series of books, uh, which are these kind of board books with the thicker cardboard pages for really, really young kids. So they can't tear them. Uh, and each one is based around a specific uh, subgenre or era of film. And so the first three, which are all out uh, right now, uh, is my first Jallo horror, my first French New Wave, uh, and my first film noir. Uh, and yes, it's supposed to be a little bit funny, but as with everything we do, you know, at Cinephile, is, um, is truly make it for the love of these movies. And they are just really imbued with a lot of love and care and references to tons of different movies, you know, in those different uh, genres and eras of film. Um, they are beautifully illustrated uh, by an extremely talented French illustrator, Julie Olivier, who I was working with for the first time. Uh, and we spent about a year on them and we're so excited to get them out there and see what people think. They are so, be so beautiful. Oh, <laughs> jinx. Jinx. I was just going to say, they're so beautiful. And what's so funny is like my, 
Like my first French New Wave, I was like, oh, this is adorable. My first film noir, I was like, oh, this is great. And I'm like, my first Giallo just tickled me so much because I'm like, my kids aren't going to be able to watch a Giallo for yeah. like 20 yeah. years, Corey. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's okay. So that's okay. Like, but, that, but that's what I mean. That was so funny. I'm just like, I can probably... I reckon at 10, 11, I could get a Maltese Falcon in there. Like, let's at this start, you know what I mean? <laughs> sure. Like, I just started thinking in my head, I'm like, when am I going to, what's, what, what the level of 12, 13, you know, throw in a, like, um, uh, like throw in a Godard, like, let's just try it, like pick, pick one at random and just try and like get something that's a little bit like less explicit, but I'm just like, okay, hey, what can I get? And then, like my first Jallo, I'm like, no, I can't, this is not happening. I'm, it's so funny, but no, it's, it's, it's adorable. They're adorable. And from your um, auto alphabet series, you could get t-shirts um, for your kids with the letters. And so my daughter is Hazel and my son is Keaton and they could get a H is for Hitchcock and a K is for Kubrick. And I was like, yep. he, he knew, he knew. And I even have gotten my kids, um, kids shirts with our podcast logo on them, which um, I have thoroughly enjoyed. So branding your children um, in, <laughs> This awesome stuff is is definitely it's it's good. And can I say for you specifically, Blake? I don't know if you're uh, going to be at the Acme Museum in Melbourne, but we did a special collabo with them where we did special W is for Weir and C is for Campion shirts. So there was those oh are available exclusive exclusively at the uh, Australian Center for the Moving Image. We have a great partnership with them. One Maria Lewis. When I was staying down there, I went down to Melbourne, went to Acme because Maria was programming an exhibit, which I was lucky enough to write for. And I went down there and I saw the C's for Campion and the W's for Weir. So I am definitely, I, I feel like if you, in your, in your, in some of our next clips um, around Podcaster and Commander, you'll see a W is for Weir shirt. If I can, uh, oh, if amazing. I can get that, because I, I, sh I should have that while I'm finishing <laughs> off Podcaster and Commander. I really should. I really should have it. They're such cute books. And I also feel like the Giallo one, like that's just like a perfect for like an adult yes. uh, horror fan. Cause it's such a fun book to read and you'll get all the references. And it's like fun to just like have on your um, yeah. coffee table or bookshelf. And it's, it's funny like that. But um, I really like on your website, you have your son reading the books and it's so cute. Uh, everybody go watch the videos. They're so adorable. Um, and yeah, and I have to say, like, when I've given my, like, film nerd new parent friends A is for auteur, like, they lose their minds. They're like, yeah. oh my god, I'm so excited. So, if you, it's like the perfect baby gift for any new parents or, or already, you know, already parents who, um, I just love movies. So, I, it's, I wanna, it's mostly for the adults. It's mostly I, for the adults. <laughs> I just want it because there's a kid's bookshelf in our land room, which currently has a lot of these cardboard covered books, but they're all blueies. They're all Bluey stories. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like Bluey episodes that they've turned into books. And so we have like all of them on there. And I'm just really looking forward to having my first Jallo next to like <laughs> next to Bluey. I would really like that just aesthetically well, <laughs> in my lounge room. I would really like that. I will say that I, I'm not a total maniac. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and I will also not be showing them any Jallo movies for a long, long time. <laughs> but however, I will say that doesn't mean they can't learn about them and that's the fun challenge of the book was how do you be true to this genre which is so incredibly lurid and inappropriate <laughs> and walk right up to the line but maybe not over it and yeah. so i think you know the when i had the idea for this series um the jalo one was the first idea just because that just it it truly tickled me like 
could I do this? You know, could I pull this off? Literally no one else would make something <laughs> like this. So I'm going to do it. And that was kind of the challenge I put out for myself. And what's funny is in having read them to my kids, that one is their favorite of the three. And they don't know, you know, anything about these movies other than what's in the book. But I guess the artwork or just, you know, something about it, that's the one they've kind of, you know, taken to um, of the three. And the, and the hope is, um, you know, the, the game, we have a wonderful partnership with Penguin Random House because we had done it independently on Kickstarter, uh, but partnered with them to release uh, the Cinephile game. But everything else, the expansion packs, A's for Our Tour, these new kids books are all completely independently made by us, you know, Cinephile. And so Little Cinephile is our you know, publishing uh, imprint. And so, yeah, if you have kids, if you know kids, if you might have kids someday, if you're a grown up who likes movies and thinks the art is cool, support uh, Cinephile so we can keep making this stuff because um, it means a lot. It's really cool. I've got to get, there's a recent expansion pack to Cinephile. It was an LA specific one. You guys yes, did the LA yeah. stories. LA we got stories. Uh, Val uh, and Heat in there. Yeah, yeah. so I'm like... Um, our friend Jen Johans, because she she jumped straight onto it because we were hanging out, and she's like, "Oh, here's the new LA expansion pack," and she showed me Val. I was like, "Oh my god, I have to get that!" So I'm I've been waiting to do it because I've been recording too many podcasts to uh, think about <laughs> anything else. But um, it's such a pleasure to have you on as always, and I can also tease Corey that you're going to be appearing in one of our new series in april that starts in april runs for nine weeks pod thomas anderson hosted by ethan warren jumping on and getting back into the world getting back in there and now we've just had announced the new paul thomas anderson project that's shooting in la next year can't wait uh and yes i i am available for any and all pod thomas anderson uh <laughs> <laughs> podcast if you want me to talk about pta for several hours i am i am available so what we're excited about is yeah, we're excited for people to hear more of that. You're going to be a part of it, so you'll you'll hear it. But uh, I, I'm excited for people to hear it. I think it's something cool and uh, spicy and going to be uh, be able to be listened to many times. Obviously, Travis was our flagship with Increment Vice, so you know we're uh, we're we're that's the the vibe show. Um, and in the world of Spotify Wrapped, um, I found out that the Paul Thomas Anderson episode. Uh, when he came on the show, uh, was listened to 999% uh, more than most episodes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so all it takes is PTA to come on to the yeah. show? <laughs> you know, okay, the, fair the, enough, the, I understand. The <laughs> only one that came close was my episode, yes, right? Yeah, so that was yeah. number you, two with the bullet. Mark, you, Michael Mann, Guillermo, yeah, you guys were, <laughs> you got, you guys were right up there. Um, but look, man, thank you so much for coming and, be, uh, and, and jumping in our taxi cab and driving through LA and, and taking a number of digressions. Not enough of them horny um but you know look we'll we'll break through katie will pressure you with your letterbox star rating of your next viewing of mine <laughs> i'll just Vice. keep trolling i'm always just like rude star rating like <laughs> katie, you, i'm just katie, trolling you, you. <laughs> you you've just gotta get Corey everett the copy of the miami nice cut that's what, what that's what we've um we've got to get him i'll give it a shot for sure um and and thanks for having me can i before we go can i just give you my collateral confession yeah are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, here it is. I I, I would not um, have considered Michael Mann such a major director without this project of yours, Blake. And so I, I loved Heat. You know, I liked a few of his movies, but the work that you have done with One Heat Minute and these, you know, obsessive, detailed projects diving in um, uh, uh, is, is really part of what changes the canon. And I mean, like I said, I, I am not the biggest fan of Miami Vice. I went back and rewatched it 
because I love you guys talking about it. <laughs> and, I, and I watched it. I was like, damn, where is that movie? You know, I, I, think I, I think I need to be sitting with you for, for it to work. But but seriously, um, I, I really appreciate you guys having me. And this has been a blast. Oh, Corey, you're so lovely. Thank you for that. And no, you don't even need to be sitting with us because you pioneered the virtual experience of having a whole bunch of people together just one day come on to one of our live screenings we do with our frothy operatives and yes you will the, the you'll the, understand you'll understand it's, i mean it's, next it's time a nice cut next we'll time nice cut. for everyone and you have to be oh. in the chat room it's so fun oh, oh, i'm gonna God. drive to katie's house and then we'll virtually we'll have <laughs> yes. drinks and then we'll yes. virtually you can, uh, have, yes. you can have a mojito yeah. get your feet mojitos t-shirt from kate gabriel's store um and, oh beautiful i love those <laughs> yeah, yeah it's so, great Kate, it's absolutely wonderful. So you can get that and uh, we'll do that. But look, been a blast talking as always, guys, if you're listening to this, jump into your notes um, on whatever podcasting app that you're using. There'll be links off um, to this and uh, hopefully rather than Corey photoshopping the Cinephile Game Nights and those books into some of our clips from this show, um, we'll have them on the shelves um, going forward. But man, thank you so much for, for being a part of the show again. And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible. Cause like, if you, if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a, you know, sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else is even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. 
uh, you know, easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it, but at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. Um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see 10 of those, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things. Again, I, I am not, uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're going to pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull, you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.